Our scripture today is found in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. If you are able, please stand this morning for the reading of the scripture. Let's hear God's word. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Good morning to everyone. It's good to be with you. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We've actually been, I looked back, I think it's been about six months now that we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, which is Matthew chapters 5, verses 7. If you were to just read it, recite it like as if it were a sermon, it would probably take you somewhere around 20 minutes. So if we're actually listening to Jesus preach this sermon, we're probably somewhere around minute 17. Right? So we're, we're at the conclusion. These next couple of weeks will be at the conclusion of his sermon. So this is the time where the preacher, it's time to land the plane. It's time to clinch the argument that you've been trying to make. And what Jesus does at minute 17 of his sermon is that he takes us to a critical juncture, this fork in the road, where he lays out two paths going in two very different directions. There's two gates leading to two paths leading to two destinations. And if you look back at the sermon, it's interesting because you realize that Jesus is not introducing something new here. Typically, it's not a good idea to introduce something new in the conclusion. Jesus is not doing that. He's, he's talking about something that actually he's been talking about the entire sermon. Let's think back. We've got to go back a few months. But we learned about these two different types of righteousness. There's the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of law and the righteousness of those who follow Jesus. There's two types of rewards, two types of treasures, two types of masters, two types of seeking. This whole time, Jesus has actually been talking about these two ways, and now he brings us to this juncture and says it's time to make a choice. Are you going to go down the narrow way, or are you going to go down the broad way? There's something stark, there's almost something, I think, disconcerting about having all the options narrowed down to two. It forces you to make a decision. Uh, from almost the beginning of my marriage with Krishana, there's been this dynamic that's been a challenge in that once we decide we, we should try to get something, we should try to buy something, whether it's a Christmas presents or a piano bench or a coffee maker, I tend to get a bit obsessive about which one to get. Like, I do not want to buy stuff that's junk. So I, get, I start to research, I start to, to read all these reviews online, and it has its advantages, right? I think it's good to avoid buying stuff that's junk, but it has its challenges, as Christiana will tell you, because often these items never get purchased. Somewhere along in the process, I get paralyzed in the research, and I can't make a decision, and Christiana will say something like, can we just make a decision? Like, should it really take six months to buy a piano bench, which was one of the latest purchases? By narrowing the options to two, Jesus is forcing our hand. In a sense, he's moving us to a crisis of decision. Like, you don't need to do more research. 
You don't need more time. You don't need to read another book. You don't need to listen to another sermon. You need to make a decision. Which path are you going to take? Christianity is called the way because it's a way. It's not a philosophy. It's a way of life. and One that Jesus describes as narrow. I feel like if Jesus would have kind of tested out uh, this pitch he makes with someone who had a marketing background, some consultant, I'm pretty sure Jesus would have been encouraged to tweak it. Because Jesus, as you notice in just these two verses, uses this word narrow several times. And narrow sounds, it sounds narrow. The Greek word uh, here for narrow path means compressed, restricted. The Greek for the broad path means spacious, roomy. Let me ask you, which of those is more enticing? Imagine if you go to the airport and you're checking in and you're offered a seat in the roomy and spacious area of the plane, or you're offered a seat in the compressed and narrowed and restricted area. Or if someone, say it's a, a guidance counselor or a, a financial advisor, someone says, you have a choice of making a, two paths ahead of you. One will take you to greater and greater freedom, and one is constricted, it's restricted. Which one are you going to choose? And yet Jesus here summons us on the narrow way. But before we can even get on the narrow way, we have to pass through a narrow gate. Our passage begins with this, enter through the narrow gate. And when you read this passage, it's, it's hard to figure out, is Jesus enter, is he inviting us to enter through a narrow gate to a narrow path, or is it a narrow path that leads to a narrow gate? If you look at it, it's kind of hard to figure out What's going on? In other words, is the gate at the end or is the gate at the beginning? I think, and I think most scholars would say, it seems that the gate is at the beginning. That there's a gate that leads on to a path. For example, if I go up to the tollway, I want to get to Pittsburgh. At some point to get on that tollway, I'm going to have to enter through a, a gate, a tollway. And I'm on my way. So in order to find ourselves on the narrow way, which is what Jesus calls us to, we're going to have to find the narrow gate. So what is that narrow gate? Well, Jesus doesn't say it here explicitly in this passage, but we know in John's gospel that Jesus describes himself as a gate. In John 10, 9, he says this, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. In other words, this this narrow point, this narrow entrance seems to be Jesus, right? We enter into the narrow way through a relationship. And I think that can maybe be a little bit different than what we often think about. So let me give you another uh, example. We're talking about paths and stuff, so I'm going to go some hiking routes this sermon. So uh, every year, about 4,000 people set out from Springer Mountain in Georgia to hike the 2,000-mile Appalachian Trail, which is this narrow pathway that goes from Georgia to Maine. And at the end is the prize, Mount Katahdin. Of those 4,000, about 25% of them actually make it to Katahdin. So for whatever reason, 75% of them don't make it. Whether they are not good enough health or shape, maybe they're homesick, maybe they get injured, uh, maybe it's just too hard, 75% on average don't make it to the prize, to Katahdin. So think about it. Lots and lots of people are in Springer Mountain. You've got this mass of people, and as they're moving north, they're just getting smaller and smaller. 
And I think it's, it's easy to start to think about the Christian journey in this way, right? The gate, maybe the gate to the kingdom of God is somewhere way down there. And, and if I'm disciplined enough, if I'm focused enough, if I work hard enough, if I'm morally good enough, I can attain that prize at the end. I can enter the gate. But I think if the gate is at the beginning, Jesus is saying it's quite the opposite. Jesus is saying the journey of discipleship begins with the gate. We don't earn our way through the gate, but rather through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has earned the gate for, through, through, for us. All right, do you see the difference that happens when you place the gate at the beginning or the end? Most of us like to feel that we've earned something, right? But the New Testament seems very clear that we can't earn our way through the gate. Think back to me. Uh, we were in Exodus last year for a long time. Think back to me about uh, the Israelites' journey out of slavery, right? The, the, the story begins with them enslavement to Pharaoh, and it moves to them moving into belonging to God into the promised land. Do they earn that, right? Does God kind of watch until the Israelites are behaving in such a way that they've earned their way, their way uh, to be led out of captivity. No. The Israelites are in this helpless situation, first enslaved, and then they find themselves in another helpless situation. They're, if you remember the story, right, there's, they're on their way out, and there's an army on one side, and there's a sea on the other. There's no way the Israelites are going to be able to get through unless a way is made, unless in, sense, in a sense a gate is made through, and that's exactly what happens, right? God opens up the waters, and they pass through. Same thing for us. You and I do not begin our Christian journey striving for the gate, hoping that if we work hard enough, if we're good enough, we earn the right to go through the gate. Now, the first step to following Jesus is to enter through the narrow gate, to enter into a relationship with Jesus. That's where things start, to put our trust in him as our Savior and Lord the one who has won the gate on our behalf. See, the gate, the gate onto the path is narrow, but it's not because it's for the elite. It's narrow because it goes through one person, Jesus Christ, which should humble us. As we pass through the gate, our first uh, reaction should not be arrogance. Look at us. We're on the narrow way. Because think back um, at the beginning of this sermon, the Beatitudes. Who's in? It's the poor in spirit, it's those who mourn, it's the meek, it's the humble. Those are the ones that find themselves in the kingdom of God at the beginning of Jesus' sermon. And we see this pattern throughout the Gospels. Again and again, the prideful find themselves outside the gate, while the humble are inside the gate. I think that in Luke's Gospel, we have this parable that Jesus tells about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And they go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee says, God, thank you that I'm not like these other people robbers and evildoers and adulterers, even this tax collector. He fasts, he ties, and in the parable, he finds himself outside the gate. Meanwhile, in the parable, the tax collector beats his breast, asks God for mercy, claims himself a sinner, and he finds himself justified. He finds himself in the gate. Again and again in the Gospels, the one who should be outside the gate is inside the gate, and the one who should be inside the gate is outside the gate. The path to the, the, the gate to the narrow path is, in fact, narrow because it goes to one person, but it's also very wide. It's open to us all. 
It's not open. It's not some elite club that only certain people can get in. So first thing I want you to see here, we don't earn our way, our right to go through the gate to the narrow path. All right, but let's move on. We've got a narrow gate going to a narrow path. You can put up that first slide. This is a, this is a picture of Snowdon, which is a mountain in Wales. It's the highest point in England and Wales. Um, there's, a, there's a number of different routes up here. Kribgosh is the one right here, and it, you go up here and you follow what's known as a knife-edge ridge. You can go on to the next picture. So this is the picture of Kribgosh from the top. In mountaineering, this is known as a knife-edge ridge. Uh, you can put one more picture up and you can leave that one up there. Here's somebody on the knife-edge ridge of Kribgosh. Kribgosh means a red ridge in the Welsh language. And as I was saying, in mountaineering, uh, sometimes you have routes that go up ridges that drop precipitously on each side, right? So you can kind of imagine, you can put that slide up, you can imagine a, a top of a knife, it's really rugged, and it goes sharply down to each side. You can just leave that up for a couple of minutes. Um, the thing about climbing a knife-edge ridge, at least in the summer here, it's not a super technical climb. I mean, you may kind of balk at that, but as long as you can walk, you, you've got steady feet, you can handle a few boulders, you can climb Crib Gosh. Okay? You, I'll, I'll let you know how to get there. It's in Wales uh, after the uh, sermon if you want. If you're in decent shape, you can do it. But the stakes are high. Right? You can see that the stakes are high. You've got to be totally focused on what you're doing while you're up on the knife edge. Like, this is not the time to be messing around. Thanks, you can, you can take it down. I show you this picture. This is the image that was in my mind a lot this week. I show you this because we come to this familiar passage and we need something to kind of shock us, to kind of wake us up. Because we cannot, what Jesus is saying here is the stakes are very high. There's two paths. One's a broad way, it leads to destruction. One's a narrow way, it leads to life. Jesus doesn't lay out specifically what destruction means, but I think we can gather that he's probably talking about separation from God. Now, I, most of you know, like most of you in here have heard me preach long enough to know that like my go-to move in sermons is not destruction and separation from God, right? Hopefully I've built up enough, like that's not my go-to move. In part because I don't think that fear should be the primary motivator for being in a relationship with Jesus. And thankfully, in the Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses back, Jesus is very clear to us that it is not our task to decide who's on the path to life and who's on the path to destruction. Right? Remember that teaching on judgment? We are not to condemn anyone. That's not our job. God in his perfect mercy and perfect justice will work that out. But at the same time, we cannot pretend that the stakes aren't high. Jesus, as Jesus concludes his sermon, he concludes by talking about people who fail to put his words into practice, leading to catastrophic results. And as challenging as we might find that teaching, we see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus is very, very clear that we will be held by, to account to God for our lives. And so I think what this passage does is maybe we're out for a Sunday walk and we're just think the stakes aren't high, it puts us on the knife edge, and it kind of shocks us. 
It kind of wakes us out of a slumber. It makes us look around and realize the stakes are really high in what Jesus is talking about. One path leads to life. One path leads to destruction. And Jesus loves us too much to pretend that's not the case. Notice how there's a broad way and a narrow way, but there's no middle way. What's the middle way? I think the middle, for most of us here, I think the middle way is maybe the most tempting path for us. I don't know that as we, as we kind of come up to this juncture, I don't think most people here want to say, yeah, I think I'm just going to reject Jesus and take the broad way. I think most of us, our biggest temptation is to try to have the best of both worlds, to have one, path, one foot on the broad path and one foot on the narrow path, to have one foot on the path that says, I can do whatever I want, but I'm also on the narrow path and that it will still lead me to life. In other words, we're glad to enter through the narrow gate. We're just not sure about the narrow path after the narrow gate. C.S. Lewis, he talks in his writing about the, the terrible, almost impossible thing it is to do to hand your whole self over all your wishes and precautions to Jesus Christ. And it really is. I think it's really something that we almost have to do. We have to do daily, if not hourly. But Lewis says it's far easier to do that, to hand our whole selves over to Jesus, than to try to do something instead. What we typically want to do is we try to hold on to ourselves, hold on to our personal happiness as the great aim of our life, and at the same time be good. Right? So, so what he says is we let our own mind and our heart go one way, right? centered on money or pleasure or ambition, in hopes that even though we're going that way, we'll still behave honestly and chastely and humbly. In other words, I think what Lewis is describing is trying to take the middle way, trying to follow our own ambitions and at the same time follow Jesus' path for us. And Jesus cannot accept this. He cannot accept this. Why? Because Jesus doesn't want half your time. Because Jesus doesn't want half your freedom. Because Jesus doesn't want half your heart or half your life. He wants you all. That's, that's restricting, isn't it? That's a narrow path. Why does Jesus want all of us? Because Jesus doesn't want to just get us through the gate that he won for us. That's the starting point. He wants to transform us. And the only way that Jesus can transform us to give us new life is for the old life to die. That sounds hard, doesn't it? I think it sounds hard. One of the things I've long puzzled with in Jesus' teaching is at some times Jesus seems to make the path of discipleship, the path of volume, sound very hard and sometimes sound very easy. So there's one place, a famous place, that Jesus says, if you want to follow after me, you must deny yourself uh, and take up your cross and follow me. In other words, you're going to have to die to yourself. Right? And we have here pretty hard teaching, the narrow path. But then... We also have Jesus saying, come to me all who are weary, who are burdened. Come to me so I can give you rest, right? I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And I want to say to Jesus, which is it? Is the path to discipleship hard or is it easy? And I think Jesus' response is yes. Because look again to me at me uh, at the passage that we're looking at. There's something easy to miss. One of the interesting things about these two ways is that Jesus doesn't describe the narrow way as the hard way. 
He says it's narrow, yes, but he doesn't use the language of heart. And I think it's easy for me, at least when I come to this passage, I immediately associate narrow with the hard way. And I think there's some truth to that, right? The Christian life is a disciplined life. It takes us to hard places. That's, that's true, right? We can go back and read the Sermon on the Mount and say, man, this is an idealistic sermon. This seems really hard. But again, Jesus doesn't say the narrow way is the hard way. He says it's the narrow way. In fact, I think what Jesus would say is, if you want to take the hard way, take the broad way. What do I mean? Well, think back. Think about all these topics that we've covered now in these six months. We've talked about anger and lust and forgiveness and money. Let's think about this. You want to take a hard path? Take the path of anger and bitterness, and holding grudges. Rather than seek reconciliation, rather than forgive those who have wronged you, hold on to your anger, hold on to your bitterness, hold on to your resentment, let it eat you up inside. That's a hard way to live. That's a hard path to walk. Look at someone who's holding a grudge and tell me that's not a hard path to walk. Let's go to Jesus teaching about lust. That sounds totally unrealistic. What about the other way? What about allowing your mind and your heart to be consumed with lust? That's a hard way to live. Think about Jesus' teachings on money and earthly treasures. Sounds hard. But rather than trust in God to care for you, see if you can build up enough treasure to finally feel secure. Make money your master. Make money your God and see how that God treats you. That's a hard way to live. You want a hard way to live? Spend all your days worrying about tomorrow. Spend all your time judging others. That's a hard way to live. In other words, follow the path of the world. Follow the broad path, because that's where you're going to naturally gravitate towards. And what you will find yourself is you are on a very, very hard path, a very difficult path, a very hard way to live. Right? The path that's marked by greed and hate and bitterness and judgment and worry and insecurity, that's the path that leads to destruction. Jesus' way is narrow, that is true, but what you find is the more you live into Jesus' way, the more life you find. See, what's really, the, I think the hardest thing about Jesus is trusting that he knows better for, uh, than us the true path to life, the true path to flourishing. Right? We want to say, you know, Jesus, I, I'll trust you to give me that ticket to heaven. I'll trust you to go through the gate, but that's as far as I'm going. I'm not taking one step on this ridge. No way. It's too narrow. It's too risky. But there's this paradoxical thing about following Jesus. The farther you take the narrow way, the more it opens up to life. Think in your minds about a funnel, right? There's, if you've got a funnel, picture it in your mind. You've got the narrow end and you've got a wide end. You can enter into the funnel either way. So what happens if you enter in the funnel through the wide way? What happens is the farther you get in that funnel, the more constricted it gets, right? It starts out broad, but the farther you go down the, the, the funnel, the tighter and tighter and more constricted things get. That's the broad way. The broad way looks great at first. It looks wide open. It looks like the, the path to freedom. But as you go down that path, what you find yourself is actually on a road to destruction. But you can go through a funnel another way. You can go through the narrow way. Right? The, the funnel is very narrow at the beginning, but as you move into it, what happens? Things open up. That's what Jesus' way is like. 
it starts out as narrow, and something along the way strange happens. The more we pass, follow down it, the more we find the joy of following Jesus, the more we find the joy of living in the reign of God. That's the path that Jesus is inviting us on. It's narrow, yes, but it leads to life. And you never walk it alone. There's one last thing about walking a knife edge ridge is that nothing steadies your nerves like a competent guide in front of you. A guide who walks ahead of you, who knows the route, who knows the hazards, who knows where you could get in trouble, and if need be, will put you on their shoulders and carry you. If we walk the knife edge ridge of discipleship alone, we will be paralyzed in fear. But we walk the knife edge with our eyes on Jesus, the one who loves us, who saves us, who has our best interests in mind, and who shows us the way, and we will not go astray. There's something interesting. When you get to Jesus, the end of the sermon, if you remember, we, we climbed up this mountain with Jesus and we're with his disciples. But when you get to the very end, if you look at it, there's actually crowds that have gathered around. So somewhere along the line, Jesus is preaching. It seems like the crowds have started to come up and listen to him. And they're amazed. They're drawn in by Jesus' sermon. If you are a seeker, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not professed him as your Lord and Savior, have died in the waters of baptism to rise to new life, if you have not gone through the narrow gate, Jesus stands at the fork and beckons you. Come through the narrow gate, which is me. Follow me on the narrow path that leads to life. If you are already a disciple of Jesus, if you have professed him as your Lord and Savior, if you have passed through the waters of baptism, I invite you to remember the path to which you have been called. It's not a broad way. It's not a middle way. It's a narrow way. It's the full surrender of our lives to Jesus Christ, the one who leads us to life.